Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Well, Father, we are so thankful for your grace that that strengthens and sustains us and, and keeps us through every situation through all of life's trials and difficulties and we're so very thankful for that this morning when all else fails when everything around us fails Lord your grace will never let us down your grace will sustain your grace will keep us until that day when you bring us home and we will see you face to face so we thank you this morning Lord for your great and abundant grace toward us We also thank you for your word. You haven't left us here as orphans. You've left us your word, and in it you reveal yourself to us. You reveal Christ to us. You reveal man's great problem, and, and the only solution to that problem, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in your word, you also then, as we come to faith in Christ, you give us instruction as to how we're to live, how we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and even this uh, we are only able to do by the enabling and empowering of your Spirit. And so we thank you that you've given us your word, and we thank you for the book of Ephesians and all the wonderful truths that it contains and the wonderful truths that we've looked at so far. And as we come once again this morning to Ephesians chapter 1, Lord, we pray that you will enlighten the eyes of our understanding that you'll give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us through your word. So, Lord, speak to us, we pray. Speak to us very clearly through your word. Do all that you desire to do in each one of our hearts today. And so, Father, we ask now your richest blessing upon the preaching of your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Amen. If you remain standing and take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'll be reading verses 15 through 23. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you'll follow along now as I begin. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. This section of Ephesians follows Paul's praise and worship in verses 3 to 14 for the amazing and unlimited blessings that believers have in Jesus Christ. And then beginning in verse 15 through verse 23, the end of the chapter, Paul moves from blessing God to offering thanksgiving and prayer for his readers. And you'll remember from last time in verses 15 to 16, we looked at Paul's thanksgiving, which was prompted by the incomparable blessings of Christ in verses 3 to 14. And in light of all of those blessings, he said in verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So Paul had heard two things about the believers in Ephesus that really encouraged his heart. First of all, he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus, and of course he was thinking primarily of their practical faith. They had not only come into the Christian life by faith, but they were continuing in it. They, they were still growing in their faith. They were still moving forward. Uh, their faith had not been some passing emotion that had come and gone. They had continued believing. They had continued as Christians. But this is not all that Paul had heard about them. Where there there is genuine faith, self-abandoning trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will inevitably be love toward all of his people. And so secondly, coupled with their faith, was their love for all the saints. And they had this love in their hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 5.5. And they chose to exercise that love toward one another. And because of the Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints, Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to know that he didn't cease to give God thanks for them, and he remembered them in his prayers. And what did he pray for them? Well, knowing that the greatest needs of the people of God are spiritual, Paul prayed in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul's request was that the Holy Spirit who dwelt within them would make their spiritual vision clearer and stronger, that God's divine power and love and greatness might be revealed to them far more fully. And for what purpose? that they might know him, that they might know God better. Paul, one of the Ephesians and and all believers, to have a deep, personal, ever-increasing knowledge of God himself through Jesus Christ, a knowledge that would continue to develop over a lifetime of, of closely walking with the Lord. And now as we pick it up in verse 18 this morning, Paul shifts from the focus of his prayer slightly, turning from having a greater knowledge of God himself to having a greater knowledge of the blessings of our salvation. And he makes three requests. First, that we might know the hope to which he has called us. Secondly, that we might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And thirdly, that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
So let's look now at verse 18 as Paul continues his intercessory prayer by requesting that God would grant his readers spiritual insight. And we see this in the first phrase of verse 18 where Paul writes, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Before they were born again, Paul's readers, like every unbeliever, were darkened in their understanding, according to Ephesians 4.18, and are themselves described as darkness in Ephesians 5.8. That's what sin does. It blinds the minds of unbelievers and, and renders them incapable of understanding the truth of the gospel, unless, of course, God opens their blind eyes. And that is exactly what God had done in the lives of the Ephesians. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.6, God let light shine out of darkness and has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what had happened to the Ephesians. So Paul is praying here for believers. He's praying for those who have been born again by the Spirit through the Word to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he is praying that by the indwelling Spirit, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened or illuminated. It means to become understanding. And why did he pray this for, the, for believers? Because you see, even though God has opened our eyes to see and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, every believer requires the ongoing illumination of God's Spirit. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we will come to a deeper understanding of God and, and the things of God and all of the truths in His Word. The eyes of your hearts, it refers to our total inner person, which includes the intellect, the emotions, and the will. And so what Paul is praying for here is not merely a matter of having an intellectual understanding of the truth. No, the knowledge Paul is praying for is not only intellectual, it's an experiential knowledge. It also grips our emotions and affections, and, and it brings our will into greater submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is really similar to the thought of Paul's previous request in verse 17, that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge, the deep knowledge of him. Paul is praying here that the indwelling spirit of God will give the Ephesians spiritual insight to grasp the truth of God's purposes, that God will provide deeper insight into his own person and will for these believers, that they will become more and more understanding. You see, all the study in the world, all the Bible study, all the, the CDs, all of the, the DVDs, all of the books, all of the study in the world will never bring you to the true knowledge of God apart from the energizing, enabling, enlightening ministry of the Spirit. I mean, as in our physical life, so it is with our spiritual life. Virtually everything depends on our sight. And so we don't need more truth or better truth, which is impossible. We simply need our spiritual eyes enlightened to comprehend all the glorious truths that God has already given to us in His Word. And so even though God has opened the eyes of believers to see and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we must still seek Him on a daily basis to enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we'll come into a deeper understanding of God and His purposes. 
And Paul now prays specifically that the Ephesian saints will have the sight to know the blessings that are ours in Christ. And three things in particular are on his mind, and he expresses them in terms of three what's. Three what's that we should know. First of all, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? First of all, Paul's first request is that his readers would know, look at verse 18, what is the hope to which he has called you? What is the hope to which he has called you? The ancient world was a world without hope. In fact, a saying in that day was, not to be born at all, that is by far the best fortune. The second best is to die as soon as one is born. The ancient world was without hope. But all of this was changed for Christians when God called them. And of course, God's call takes us back to the beginning of our Christian lives. It's, it's God's gracious, sovereign call that delivers us out of Satan's kingdom, the domain of darkness, and places us into Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of light. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, Paul tells us in Romans. True, we called on him to save us, but our call was in response to his. And so the question now is, what did God call us for? What did God call us for? Because his call was not random or without purpose. You know, what is this hope to which he has called us? Well, first of all, we need to define what hope is. Because today, when we think of hope, it's, it's something uncertain. It's, you know, it's wishful thinking. Like our ordinary, everyday hopes or, or wishes about the weather or our health. It's, it's nothing but a subjective desire such as, well, I, I hope that, that this is going to happen in the future, but I don't know for sure that it's going to. But in the New Testament, The word hope is used of that which is for certain because it is grounded on what God has done for us in the work of Christ. And that is why the Bible speaks of a living hope, a blessed hope, and a hope which is sure. Christian hope, therefore, is a confident expectation because it rests upon the promises of God. There's no question marks here. It is a confident expectation. It is an absolute certainty. In Scripture, the word hope also looks toward the last things or to the completion of what has already been begun. And by linking the idea of the call to hope, Paul is telling us that the calling of God, which he talked about in the first half of this chapter, is not without a context. God has called us to something and for something. I mean, earlier he said that God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, and to be to the praise of his glory. That calling is part of our hope, but that's not all. In Romans, Paul describes our hope as involving sharing in the glory of God. He also speaks in other places of the hope of salvation, the hope of righteousness, of resurrection of an incorruptible body and eternal life, along with our hope of being taken into heaven, seeing God and being made like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing here, he's asking God to open their eyes to know this hope and to be assured of its certainty. 
Because God wants all of His believing children to know for sure who they are and where they're going. And why is this important? Because once we really understand this, it will absolutely transform how we look at this world with all of its sin and suffering. And how we look at others who, by the grace of God, also share the same destiny. And as believers, we're going to heaven. It is a certainty. And we're going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in every way. And knowing this gives us the assurance that we really are God's children and that His hand really is upon us, leading us to a certain and glorious destiny. And as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, this hope we have is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Paul wants them to understand the certainty of this. And you know, one of, the, one, one of Satan's primary tactics is to sow seeds of doubt into our minds. You know, doubt which causes us to ask questions like, you know, am I really saved? Am I truly going to heaven? Well, you see, assurance of salvation frees us from uh, self-absorption so that we can live without distraction for our Savior. And so Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of the Ephesian believers to the great and glorious hope that is theirs in Christ Jesus. But this hope isn't something that's only for the future. No, this hope is the present possession and experience of every believer. Paul tells Christians in Colossae that Christ in them is presently the hope of glory. You see, so much of the Christian life is lived in the tension of the already but not yet. You know, we presently possess all things, but we do not presently possess all things in their fullness. But one day we will. And so as you and I wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, if we lack assurance, you know, if we're struggling with doubts, then we must pray that the Holy Spirit will enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know the hope that he has called us to in Christ. I mean, this is so important. And you know, I don't believe it's by chance that Paul places the hope to which he has called us before these other two requests. You say, well, why is that? Well, I believe he gives this a priority because how we live the Christian life is largely determined by how we think about the future. As one man said, the purpose behind God's revelation about the future is to transform the way we live in the present. And that was certainly true of our Lord's teaching. I mean, knowing that the Lord Jesus is going to come again should lead us to live each day in light of his return and to treat others in light of his final assessment of our lives. You know, John wrote in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he said, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
In other words, knowing the certainty of Christ's return, that, that we're going to see him as he is. Knowing the certainty of this should have a purifying effect on our lives. It, it should affect how we live life in this world. You know, Peter speaks about the final dissolving of all things and, and the creations of a new heaven and earth in the day of the Lord. And he adds in 2 Peter 3.11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You know, knowing that, God, that the Lord is coming, knowing this is all going to be destroyed, what kind of life should we be living? Well, lives of holiness and godliness. Lives uh, expecting Christ's return could be at any moment, because it could be. But as we look at the church today, I think it's safe to say that a good portion of the professed church has lost this sense of the practical implications of the hope to which he has called us, because there seems to be so little practical life transformation. So many people in the church live uh, exactly the same way the people in the world do. And so it's really not that hard to understand why this is the first thing that Paul prays for here. As one commentator wrote, we need to see the future clearly if we're going to live in the present faithfully. The truth is, Christians are never too heavenly minded to be any earthly use. It is far more likely that we are little earthly use in the sense of making little impact on the world in which we live because we are too this worldly minded, too much like it to be able to transform it. The realization that our citizenship is in heaven encourages us to live in the world as those whose ultimate identity lies elsewhere. That's exactly right. And it's the citizens of heaven those who live in this world knowing that their ultimate identity is in Christ, knowing that their, their citizenship is in heaven and, and they're just pilgrims passing through on their way to that celestial city, it is those people who live that way in this world that have the greatest impact on, the, on, on, the, on, on, on our society. They're the ones that make the greatest differences on earth. And so Paul wants us to know what the hope to which he has called us. You know, this brings up the question where, well, you know, where else are you going to find hope? Or in what else are you going to find hope in this world? Are you going to, you know, just try to get along, to stay out of trouble, and to have a little fun along the way? I mean, is that your hope? Are you hoping to store up large sums of money? I mean, is your hope in power? Is your hope in fame and achievement? Are you hoping that, that, that all of these things will take you through life's storms and difficulties and bring you the fulfillment that you desire? I mean, is your hope in your own abilities or, or in the success of a corporation or in the success of, of the country? And if it's in the success of the country, boy, aren't you disappointed? Is your hope in your degrees or in, in all of your connections? Look, all of these things, uh, though valuable in some sense, will never sustain you or fulfill the longings of your soul. 
But the Christian hope, the Christian hope can stand up to every trial and and even to death because our salvation is grounded in the promise of Christ to forgive our sins, raise us from the dead, and bring us to eternal life. It's a certainty. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Isaiah, therefore, says, Those who wait upon the Lord. And that word wait means a waiting on, on one whose coming is known with the added notion of patience and trust. So those who wait for the Lord, the one who is known, uh, whose coming is known, those who wait on the Lord patiently, trustingly, will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, it makes a tremendous difference when, when we know the hope to which God has called us. It makes a tremendous difference when we know that our hope is in the Lord because it is a, a sure hope. It is a certainty in which we may trust and rejoice even in the darkest of times. Our hope is certain. Because Christ is the faithful one who fulfills all his promises. Second, Paul prays that the eyes of the Ephesians' understanding will be enlightened so that they would come into a deeper understanding of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And although it is possible to see the inheritance here as God's inheritance of his people, which is a concept found in both the Old and New Testament. It is best to view the inheritance here as that which God gives to his people. You say, well, why is that? Because of the context. Paul is praying that we might know our call and destiny. And because of parallel text in Colossians 1.12, there Paul prays that we might share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And additionally, just a few verses earlier, Paul had said that those who believed the gospel were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so most likely he is speaking of the same thing now in his prayer. So Paul prays then for us to know the riches of the glory of the inheritance that God has for us in Christ. He started off with the hope of our calling And now Paul wants us to comprehend the glorious riches of all the blessings of salvation that await us at the end. But, if the riches of our inheritance involve the future realization of what we already have in part, well then what's the difference between this request and the first request in which Paul asks that we might know the hope to which he has called us? Well, as one commentator noted, the answer is in the difference between the words hope and riches. In the first case, the emphasis is upon hope, which is a certainty. But the issue issue there is assurance. In the second case, the emphasis is upon riches. And here the issue is, is the scope of the blessings that God has for us. You know, we should note exactly what what Paul says about this inheritance. Notice, first, our inheritance is so abundant that he refers to it as riches. Riches. You know, God says in Proverbs 8.18, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. 
Secondly, he refers to our inheritance as a glorious inheritance. I mean, this inheritance is, is rich, especially in glories. We'll not only see the glory of God, we'll share in it. I mean, Paul writes in Romans 8, 16 and 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer in him, with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So our inheritance uh, is one of riches, it is glorious. Third, as an inheritance, it is something that is secure. It's secure. As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter says we have an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for us. And it's safe there in heaven. It's safe uh, there. It, it can't be defiled, corrupted, or stolen. It can't be taken away and given to someone else. Why? Because it's being kept by God. God is the source of the inheritance. I mean, God is, is the giver here. I mean, these blessings are called an inheritance because they are the gift of God's grace. So in other words, it's not earned, but it is given. And once they are given to us, they will never be taken away again. And once we receive them, it's held in as a possession by right. And so we have a guaranteed, reserved future that God has already determined and established. And it's an inheritance. It's a rich, glorious inheritance. And fourthly, Paul tells us it is an inheritance in or among the saints. And this phrase, uh, in the saints or among the saints, really deserves some special attention. And I say that because when a believer's hope is what it should be, he never looks forward to an inheritance just for himself. What will make the inheritance so glorious is exactly the fact that we will enjoy it together with all who love his appearing, with all the company of the redeemed throughout the ages. As one man said, the joys we, we know now as we share in our gifts and graces, in worship and prayer and in the fellowship of faith, will pale before the inheritance we have together in the riches of God's glory. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. As much as is possible in this life, Paul wants the eyes of our hearts enlightened to comprehend the riches of our glorious inheritance among the saints. And while we wait for the time when we'll take full possession of our inheritance, we are sustained by hope, by hope. But what should we expect at, at the end of our Christian journey? You know, what, what does our inheritance consist of? Well, our inheritance includes a, a perfect justification in the day of God's final judgment. I mean, all of us will be present at the great white throne for a final division where God will separate the sheep and the goats, and he will place the sheep on, on his right hand, the goats on his left. 
And all the sheep, all those who are saved by the blood of the Lamb, all of those who belong to Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, will hear the Lord say, He will say to those on His right, Come, who, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And if that's not enough, there's more. We'll not only be acquitted of guilt, but we will be perfected in holiness. Think about that, perfect in holiness. I mean, we're to look forward to the day when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. And we can't even comprehend what, that, what that's like. Because along with ourselves, everything we know in this world has been tainted and corrupted by sin. But we're to look forward to that day when we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. And on that day, we will no longer have to contend with sinful words, actions, and motives. We will no longer have to contend with an impure heart, with vile, angry, selfish, and self-centered thoughts. We'll be delivered from the very presence of sin and be perfected in holiness. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Death smites a believer as the angel did Peter and made his chains fall off. Believers at death are made perfect in holiness. Oh, what a blessed privilege is this to be without spot or wrinkle, to be purer than the sunbeams, to be as free from sin as the angels. Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of those in heaven as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And that is what we will be. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, the commentator. Matthew and a young lady had fallen in love with each other, but she belonged to a much higher level of society than he did. And although she had become a Christian and therefore regarded such things differently, her parents saw things differently. <laughs> they saw the disparity in social status as an obstacle to the marriage. You know, this man, Philip Henry, they said, where has he come from? And to this question, the future, Mrs. Henry gave the immortal reply, I do not know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. And this is true of every single person who has come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Wherever we're from, we are all going to an inheritance in heaven the likes of which our feeble minds can scarcely even begin to comprehend. And so it's no wonder that Paul writes about riches and glory and, and inheritance. He was overwhelmed by it, as was the Apostle John. He was overwhelmed by these things, and he wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. But our ultimate inheritance is God himself. He gives himself to us in Christ, even as he takes us to himself. And so with, as one man said, with renewed eyes, we will see in heaven what now only the eyes of our hearts can see. The vision of God and his glory, infinite perfection extended to us in infinite love. You know what? We, we know very little of these blessings. I mean, next to nothing. 
we can't even begin to comprehend them. But the fact of the matter is, we know very little enough of the blessings that God has for us here. Blessings like prayer. Being able to come right to the throne of God through Christ. The blessings of prayer, blessing of Bible study, opening up the very Word of God and allowing God to speak to us through His Word. We know very little of the joys of Christian fellowship because so many don't. We know very little of the privilege and joys of corporate worship and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And loved ones, if that's true of earthly things, how much truer is it of these heavenly things? You know, what do we know of of heavenly joys, of of heavenly worship? You know, as Paul wrote, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now we know so very little. And what we do know, we know imperfectly. But we should know more. And we can. We can as we grow in grace and and, and pray for one another that the Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our understanding to see and, and to comprehend these things. And so when we experience trials now, we we need we don't need to despair. Because the Spirit gives us eyes to see beyond this world and and really into heaven itself to know of the riches of the inheritance that is surely ours. We have everything to look forward to. We We need to have that pilgrim mindset. You know, we're just passing through. And we need to live like those who are passing through. We need to live like those whose citizenship is in heaven. In other words, we need to live like citizens of heaven now. But that's costly living, isn't it? It's very costly. It's going to become more costly as things get darker and darker. Third, Paul prays that the eyes of the Ephesians' understanding will be enlightened so that they may know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Look at verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? It's interesting. Paul first directed our attention to the beginning of our Christian life, our calling, and then to the end, our inheritance as saints. But now he tells us what we need in the present. Power from God to live out the Christian life. And this power speaks of the limitless resources available to God's people. I mean, it's, it's part of the promise of hope because without this divine power, we're not going to make it to the inheritance. We can't live this Christian life on our own. Not for one moment. God keeps the inheritance in heaven for us, and God keeps us for the inheritance. Otherwise, we would fall and give up hope in the midst of our trials and tribulations. But if there was one thing the Christians in Ephesus no doubt felt they lacked, it was power. They were few in number. 
marginalized. Some of them had probably been disinherited. They were surrounded by by the powers of darkness that was manifested through the occult, the magical arts, the the cultic worship of the goddess Diana and, and emperor worship. And just all of the paganism that that inundated that city. So these precious believers needed to know that the one who was in them was greater in power than the one who was in the world. And that his great power is available to the weak. In fact, his power is made perfect in weakness. And I, for one, am very thankful for that. And Paul longed for these believers to know these things. He longed and prayed for them to grasp with their hearts as well as their heads the greatness of God's power that is available to all who belong to Him. And in describing the power that that God provides, Paul just just piles up the words. I mean, it's almost almost as if he was struggling to, to find the words to convey in human language the greatness of God's power. I mean, it wasn't enough for him to simply refer to God's power, so he refers to the the greatness of God's power. But that wasn't enough for him, uh, so he referred to, it wasn't enough for him to refer to the greatness of God's power, and so he refers to the immeasurable greatness of God's power. The immeasurable greatness, which can't be measured because it's the power of the immeasurable God. And in verse 19, he uses four different terms for God's immeasurably extreme and mighty power. The first is the word power. It's the Greek word dunamis, from which we get dynamite, and it speaks of raw power to overcome obstacles. The second is the word working. It's the Greek word energia, from which we get energy, which speaks of God energizing his people for godliness. The third word, great, is the Greek word krotos, And the fourth word is might. It's the Greek word isis. And both mean might or strength, you know, controlling power. Commentator Leon Morris summarizes, Paul is using a multiplicity of words denoting power to bring out the truth that there is mighty power in God and it is a power directed towards the betterment of believers. And the best part is that this power is not an abstract energy or a a theoretical assertion of what God can do, but it is a declaration of what God actually does. And he does this, he said, Paul tells us, toward those who believe. This incredibly great and awesome power of the great and awesome God is intended for and on behalf of you and I. It's not available to unbelievers. They don't have access to this power. This power is only available for those who believe. And then just in case we thought Paul couldn't say, or Paul could say nothing greater about God's power that's available to us, he adds the supreme analogy, saying that the power God has for us, notice verse 19 and 20, this power that God has for us is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so according to Paul, God's power for Christians is not merely like the power that raised Jesus from the grave. Rather, it is the very power that raised Jesus from the grave. 
One commentator wrote, the Christian is a new man, recreated in Christ Jesus by the almighty power of the Holy Spirit. That same resurrection power continues to work in the believer's life towards the goal of Christ-like and God-honoring holiness. I mean, think of this. Think of it. The same resurrection power by which Christ conquered death is now at work in the life of every believer. But we don't live like it, do we? You would think that so often we're completely unaware of this great power that is at work in us and is available to all who believe. There's nothing else like this immeasurably great power toward those who believe. And this power, this this is the, the Bible's answer to the questions, how am I, as a child of God, supposed to live out the Christian life in this world? Or how are we, with our selfish hearts and our sinful minds, ever going to follow Christ? I mean, the Bible tells us that true biblical love must be patient and kind. It, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. But this is contrary to every natural instinct of our hearts. So how are we supposed to love like this? Or there's Philippians 2, 4, and 5, which says that we should have Christ's attitude in, in seeking the interest of others ahead of our own. The problem is that our minds don't work that way, not at all. I mean, our minds are, filled with, uh, are not filled with thoughts of others, but rather they are immediately filled with thoughts of ourselves, and, and ourselves first and foremost. And we, we, we could make a list of this, and we could just list these things on and on and on. You know, how am I, you know, who still has to contend with my sinful flesh every waking moment of every day, how am I supposed to walk in holiness and love, which I read about in the Scriptures? How am I supposed to do this? You know, because uh, just do better and try harder doesn't work, does it? So how are we supposed to live the the life that we've been called to live? What is the power that we need to be able to do this? We'll get to that in just a moment, but one of the most common errors today is that Christians look for the power to live the Christian life practically everywhere else except from God. Whether it's psychology, self-help, Christian music, I mean, on and on and on. But the problem with that is that the power of sin is greater than any earthly power or solution. We need a power that comes from heaven. And so God would have us turn to him in prayer and through his word for a supernatural power that transcends anything that we can achieve by our very best efforts. So what is this power that we need? Well, the answer is right here. Paul tells us in verses 19 and 20, it is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the power. It's God's unlimited exceeding power toward us or in us who believe. It is that power that enables us to overcome temptation. 
It is that power that enables us to resist the pressure to compromise the truth. It's, it's the power to cope with shattered hopes. It's the power to overcome indwelling sin and the power to persevere to the end. Even though we may be bloodied, we will still be standing. And so it's vitally important that we understand that this power is, is not the possession of the favored few. It's not, it's not the possession of some elite category of Christian. No, it is toward us who believe. All Christians. You know, however young or old or weak or strong they may be in their faith, every believer has the same immeasurably great power acting for them and in them. As one man said, weak faith is not as comforting or as joyful as strong faith. But because it is united to Christ, it is the recipient of God's immeasurable power. Christians need to believe in and live in the good of this power and not be overwhelmed by the power of the enemies of the gospel or by their, by their own variableness. It is, if God is for us, who can be against us? God's immeasurably great power is for all who believe. Well, how are you and I to experience that power? Well, if we're to live in the power of Christ's resurrection, we have to come to know God, don't we? That's what Paul prayed for first. And if we're to know God, we have to spend time with Him in, in Bible study, prayer, and and meditation, because you don't get to know a person without spending time with him or her. No more uh, can you get to know God without spending time with him. That's the secret. It's not intelligence, you know, outstanding instruction or academic degrees. No, it's time spent with God. It is to people who sit at Jesus' feet who come to know him deeply and intimately. And this is what happens as we walk with Jesus with our Bibles open and our hearts turned upward in prayer day by day and year by year that by the Spirit He sends we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The power is there. It's available to us. It's at work in us. We just have to draw upon it. I read a story, and I don't have it in my notes, so I'll see if I can remember it. I read a story, a true story, about William Randolph Hearst. I mean, most of you are probably familiar with him. Hearst Castle, the Hearst Empire. Well, he, he found some treasures of some sort that he just had to have. And so he sent his man, you know, worldwide looking for these treasures. Couldn't find it anywhere, or them anywhere. And then this man had the insight to begin to do an inventory of the many warehouses in which Hearst had uh, stored all of his bought and treasures. And there, lo and behold, were the very things that Hearst was looking for. They were in his possession the entire time. That's the same way it is with us as believers when it comes to the power of God that is available to, to those who believe. It's there. We just don't draw upon it. We don't spend time with Christ, we don't spend time with God getting to know Him deeply and more intimately. 
We don't ask, we don't spend time praying that, that God would enlighten the eyes of our understanding that we may see all of these things. The hope of our calling, the, the riches of our glorious inheritance and the power, uh, uh, the immeasurable power of God that's available to all of those who believe. It's all there. We're not talking about something God is going to give us in addition to what we already have. These, these things are already ours. but we don't draw upon them. And so we live like spiritual paupers when all the resources we need for living the Christian life in this world are are there and available to us. We just need to draw upon them. And so Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that we may comprehend this power, and and that that it may become real in our lives as we trust in Christ and, 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 and come into a deeper and more intimate relationship with Him. But the key is that it must be real in our lives. It must be a reality in our lives. And this is to be experiential knowledge. I mean, just as in Paul's opening petition, the knowledge of God is to be experiential. Paul was not going to be any more satisfied with an intellectual knowledge of God's power on the part of the Ephesians than he was going to be satisfied with the mere intellectual knowledge of God. I mean, sure, it's important to know both these things intellectually, but that's merely the starting point. Beyond this, he wanted them and us to know God and the power of Christ's resurrection in our lives. And now, although Paul's prayer continues, his requests do not. And after mentioning God's power, Paul's mind, it seems, just just takes off. It just soars at the thought of God's great power that is toward us who believe. And in verses 20 to 23, Paul is praising God for how uh, his great power was demonstrated in different ways in Christ. But that's for next time, Lord willing. You know, in, in closing, you know, what, what a tragedy. What a great tragedy it would be if we didn't have the spiritual insight to know all that is ours in Christ. You know, how tragic it would be if we walk through life without knowing the hope that our calling provides. How spiritually poor our our lives would be if we knew nothing of the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints that will be be ours in the end. You know, how absolutely frustrating it would be to struggle with sin, not relying on God's power, which comes to us through prayer and God's word. Be tragic. But you see, when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to see these wonderful truths, they make an incredible difference. They make all the difference in our lives. I mean, God wants us to know for sure who we are and where we're going and how we're going to get there. Because as I said earlier, when we really understand these things, 
It will transform how we look at this world with all of its sin and suffering. And how we look at others who by the grace of God also share our same ultimate destination. Loved ones, as believers, we're going to heaven. Count on it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. And we're going, when we get there, we're going to be just like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be like him in every way. Free once and for all from the very presence of sin. I can't, I can't even imagine, but I'm looking forward to it. And you see, knowing these things gives us the assurance that we really are God's children. It gives us the assurance that his hand really is upon us, that he really is leading us and, and guiding us to a certain and a glorious destiny. Amen. Let's pray. Let's stand. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.